Nosferatu, Dasvidanya, Chimichanga, AFC, <laughs> Noam Chomsky, LMNOP, welcome, Neophyte, Rimsky-san. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. I feel blessed. I feel cleansed. My chakras are clear. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Just open open yourself. So I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm open. I want to welcome... Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Open, receptive. I'm, I'm ready. Thank you. I want to welcome Matthew Remsky of the podcast Conspirituality and the book Conspirituality. That's really good. I've always enjoyed uh, him and the other contributors work with that. They um, kind of look at the intersection of politics and pseudoscience and spirituality um, in a way that's really relevant. Um, So we're lucky to have him here today, and I appreciate you joining us. Um, I'm excited to kind of get into it and talk about some of the some of the stuff out there uh, that's going on in the world right now. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks so much for your uh, for your invitation. And uh, yeah, and I'm I'm also always happy to talk to therapists because you know uh, you are in the room uh, and you're doing sort of very granular work with this material, and uh, that's not often something that I get exposure to as somebody who does a lot of broad research and and cultural tracking. So so that's great. It is a weird barometer, you know, because you see these shifts happen pretty quickly. And one of the things that I talk about with my uh, colleagues a lot is how it's almost like these generational differences have been smushed into like two and five year periods instead of 10 year cycles. Yeah. The difference in me and somebody five years younger than me and somebody five years different from them is so vast. Yeah. Especially just in the amount of hope that they have, you know, right? Yeah. because they grew up with the Internet reading this stuff and they don't really plan on there being an economic or ecological future for themselves. You know, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, there's there's a there's a cliff. They can see it fast approaching. But that kind of nihilism, I think, is is sad, you know, and it's also kind of scary um, because you have people who essentially never even had the vision that there was a hope for the future. And then that was sort of in question. They just came into the world with the assumption that that was never a reality. That yeah, if I if I have uh, the time and the wherewithal, and uh, I get a I get a contract that allows me to get out of this horrible news cycle, I think I would turn my attention primarily to that with regard to the issue of parenting, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that um, n- not or being able to not make despair transitive in familial relationships to not make the anxiety of you know your own gen x or millennial uh despair uh a a single or central feature of your children's life is is one of the most important challenges i think that i'm personally Uh engaged with so so yeah yeah great to talk great to talk to you yeah um, not always the fun stuff to talk about, but that's kind of where we try and go because, you know, trauma therapy podcast, the intersection of that and other yeah. realities in the world is that interest of mine. So, I mean, first it's like, I know you have interviewed, um, the directors of one of the documentaries on twin flames. There's two of them, um, which was one of those recent cults. And then there's, there's all of these kind of mixtures of, it seems like multi-level marketing that neuro linguistic programming, post Ericksonian hypnosis motivational interviewing stuff yeah and and basically the internet that has created these things um these kind of post-nexium cults 
uh, that there seems to be a new documentary about, you know, mother cult, the God of the, I forget what her name was, the, the cult of the mother God. Yeah. Amy Uh, Carlson. Yeah. Well, and the thing is those things are fascinating because it seems like they're just increasingly low rent. I mean, when my wife was watching the twin flames documentary and not at all to make fun of any of the people who are a victim of something like that, but she was like, it doesn't look like the people running this are trying very hard. And it doesn't look like the people who are in it are even believing very hard, you know? Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, part of my, you know, sort of personal story, which I might say a little bit more about later is that, you know, I was into high demand groups for about six years in my early thirties. And that's really kind of the the backbone of my research interest going forward. And I think it's really the role that I play on the podcast actually is, is looking at the sociology of toxic spiritual groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a field that has become its own spectacle. Uh-huh. And I think something strange is happening uh, where it's becoming increasingly important to separate out two different things. And one is what are the parameters and mechanisms of a cultic group uh, and what are our cultural fetishes around that group? Uh-huh. Um, you know, for people who are familiar with the incredible success of Nexium. Uh-huh. Uh, not only as a an organization, but also as an entertainment franchise now, uh-huh. because there are you know multiple big budget streaming documentaries out there. There's all kinds of reporting. Um, I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that a lot of the people who came away from that group who ended up being central in its demise uh, came from the entertainment industry. Yeah, and they. You know, that's that's not a problem in itself, but it does mean that there are incentives to turn uh, the cultic experience into a cultural product uh, that not that doesn't necessarily add to our sense of understanding or or learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think with regard to Nexium. Uh, the the usage of cultic discourse. There's no there's no doubt it was a cult. There's no doubt yeah. that Keith, Keith Raniere is a standard cult leader. But the way that some of these spectacles are now framed, uh, for me, suggests that the term cult becomes uh, an increasingly lazy and sensationalist term for like highly concentrated and localized capitalism. Yeah. And yeah. what ends up happening is that, you know, the, the more a monster Keith Raniere is, the less we really look carefully at Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, the more, the more that the, the basic power economies of power relations of our economies are ignored, the more we can sort of invest and project all of its ugliness into, into a group. Um, yeah. And, you know, Keith really doesn't behave that differently from the typical billionaire uh, mm-hmm. CEO. And we have to understand that his entire sort of technique, his method evolved out of the sort of the worst forms of predatory capitalism. And so and so there's a there's a way in which I think cult uh, commentary and documentaries at this point are doing the same kind of cultural labor that uh, true crime and cop dramas do. Yeah. For the do for the carceral state. Uh, basically, we 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 make people who are vulnerable to these groups into, um, you know, cultural jokes uh, and people who are weirdos. I think that is very very significant with regard mm-hmm. to the Love Has One cult. Um, I think it's it also plays out in the Twin Flames universe. And but really, I mean, we're talking about people in very marginalized 
vulnerable circumstances uh, whose whose uh, tragic adventures in these groups probably would have been averted by better social services. And that's the conversation that we're not having because we're talking about how evil cults are. Yeah, you hit on two of my um, kind of soft, softer questions already there, which was that one, you know, you think the, there's pros and cons to giving this the true crime treatment. And I think I, from my perspective, when it ignores these larger realities of capitalism to look for a boogeyman and then say, oh, look, here's this weird guy. So direct your anger at him. That isn't as useful as yeah. the ones that like I, I think cult of the mother, the mother, uh, the, the Amy Carlson documentary did a good job at showing that if these people had had access to healthcare, that yeah. that cult probably never would have happened. Yeah. That so much of it was her seeing this need and being like, well, I'm going to identify actual problems with that system to critique it. And the answer is that you need to turn blue drinking colloidal silver. You know? Well, and you expand that or extrapolate it out to the level of QAnon and the same dynamics are at play where um, this becomes a demographic that is more stigmatized than understood. And that just doesn't work. It it doesn't it it and and I think it fits very sort of um cleanly into the smug condescension uh that you know is is characterized by Hillary Clinton talking about a basket of deplorables, right? Like yeah. there's no there's no um you know, obviously the the ideologies, the memes, the harassment, the shitposting of QAnon is odious uh-huh. and it's and it's harmful. Uh-huh. Um but the the uh broad sections of immiserated uh lower middle class and working class people uh in Rust Belt you know, territory that get drawn into it, often when they are out of work, often when they're injured, sometimes when they are, um, you know, trying to wean themselves off of Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's like, it's like, this is, we, this is a systemic this is symptomatic QAnon is symptomatic it is yeah. not it is not a uh, a sin it's not a bad a series of bad choices mm-hmm. um it it there, there's a lot about it that makes sense in, in terms of of how it attempts to bind people together that have lost other forms of sociality well and i think the the people who probably agree with the political outcomes that i would want but i disagree with their method that's what they're doing is they're trying to use shame as this tool politically, yeah. which I just don't think ever works. It never works. My point is even if you're saying that you want what you want, you realize that doing it the way you're trying to do it, you're going to get the the other result inevitably. I mean, there's certain inevitabilities, you know, one, the question that I'd emailed you ahead of time, you know, in the seventies in the U S you've got a lot of economic malaise, you know, Christ, Carter goes up and tries to offer another myth, essentially, for what America is yeah. to replace the one that's failing with the crisis of confidence speech. And that's completely unsuccessful. You know, people are angry and you get this interest in mysticism and esotericism, which my theory is because you see this in every other empire when its star starts to wane. You know, you get Mithraic cults as part of a in the army basically of rome when the when the empire is no longer reflecting the ego of the individual then i get this ego dissonance or i get this cognitive dissonance where i'm like i I need power and my empire is not doing it and my football team's not doing it and my army's not doing it so i must go inward now and find a personal power and esoteric power and we always joke about how it was just so easy in the 70s to start like a 
like a, a cult that you could just wear an orange bed sheet and say kindergartner facts about like eating healthy and hand <laughs> up some guy a, a flower in the airport and they're like, yeah. do you have any metaphysical beliefs to go along with this flower? Like, thank you so much, you know? Right. And, and, but I think that that was due to basically the, the uh, economy and the oil embargo and, and all of those things. And so I think we're seeing that again now as people sort of lose faith, you know, left or right, people feel like the government doesn't reflect their interests. They feel like they lost. And so, uh, you know, QAnon is essentially a conspiracy theory about how even though you didn't get what you wanted or the guy you wanted isn't really in charge, actually, he secretly is underneath the surface. So you can still feel like you were right or that you were powerful. Yeah. And that you're going to get and that you're going to get retribution. Yeah. That you're going to have justice and that you're not powerless. Let me just go back to one thing. I have a lot to say about the emergence of magic or or the cycles of of magic, but just to pick up on what you were saying about shame, um, I think because I agree with Jeff Charlotte that that fascism is actually uh, a very appropriate framework for the kinds of uh, anti politics that we see emerging uh, on the right wing in the United States. There's there's a sense not that we're talking about policy, uh, not that we are, um, you know, uh, really debating the common good, uh, but that we are uh, playing with spectacles of power and affect. And, uh, you know, this is why uh, Trump is just not really a, a politician in that sense, right? He's a yeah. he's he's an entertainer. Uh, and. As somebody who is playing primarily on uh, affect and power, uh, to counterpose that with shame, to dig into the emotional, you know, speculation of the the souls of the people who are already activated mm-hmm. in this in this very primal way, it just cannot work. It cannot work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so, you know, it, it's not like. Uh, I believe that that reflective listening and you know everybody having individual therapy is going to change the course of the country. But I don't think that um, you know uh, furthering the discourse, the polarizing discourse of stigmatization, is going to really help in in any way. But as far as magic goes, like the way I think about uh, this rhythm that you're talking about. Um, of the the emergence of of magical thinking or mysticism during times of economic and political stress, the person who I think summarizes this best in the sort of microcosm that we study, which is, you know, what's happened between 1960 and you know 19 and, and 2020, and then the pandemic kind of like blows everything up or amplifies any of all of that. Uh, the guy's name is Sam Binkley. Uh, mm-hmm. and he's, he's got a book called getting loose It's from 2004. And he, he starts by talking about like, all right, so, so in the fifties, we have this contracted sort of repressive Fordism that the boomers basically are born mm-hmm. into and grow up in. They go through a huge expansive project of, of potential social change in the sixties. Uh, and that actually, uh, fails in many ways, bringing upon the contraction of the 1970s self-project and then the 1980s as the monetization of the self-project. Uh-huh. And and so I, I actually have a, a quote from here, him that I think that it's like, 
is is so pertinent. He says that by the early 1970s, it was clear that sweeping social changes were not going to materialize. A whole generation's trust and leadership had virtually collapsed, and the sense of national integrity and purpose had been shaken to the core. Not surprisingly, the national mood turned inward. People wanted to restore some semblance of normalcy to their lives after a decade of wrenching change. For the more persistent among this pioneering culture, the agenda shifted from transforming society to finding new ways of living at the grassroots level of society. Instead of continuing the seemingly fruitless struggle to change dominant institutions, many among this forerunner group began to concentrate on their immediate lives, the domain where they had genuine control and could make a visible, if seemingly small, difference. At the local level, countless small experiments in living began to flourish. Now, we take that analysis and say it is embodied by the yoga and wellness world's drive to depoliticize its demographic, you know, very consistently over 20, 30 years uh, to say, you know, political engagement is actually too abstract. It's useless. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's, it's conflictual. It doesn't accord with your higher truth. Um, So yeah, uh, Yeah. what, what, you know, magic is what happens when, uh, or what emerges as an answer. Um, the self project emerges as kind of like the fallback Uh uh, default project of, uh, you know, uh, this melancholy, uh, Mm. that says, that said, that says, uh, oh, um, it didn't really, it didn't really work. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, and, or, or it was too painful or we uh-huh. lost, or we lost too much, or we can't actually believe that we couldn't end the Vietnam war. Yeah. The, 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 the methods of getting what we wanted, we have to still pretend that they're effective instead of changing what we think effectiveness is or effective action. Is. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, and I get a lot of crap from self-appointed like Jungian experts and uh, clinical psychology students every time I talk about that relationship, like I'm saying that there's a spiritual cycle to, you know, Chinese calendar of politics or something. But to me, it's basic psychology. I mean, the microcosm is the macrocosm. Like what happened? Who's going to get into D&D and religion and comparative religion and Joseph Campbell in the high school? It's the nerd that can't get on the football team that's getting thrown in a locker that can go down yeah. in the basement and play D&D, you know? Yeah. And there's this relationship to the external self and the internal self. And when we're pathways to this external kind of actualization are cut off, we move inward. And I, I don't think there's a way around that in psychology, if you're going to be honest, you know? Well, what happens too economically is that as soon as the self-project becomes a focal point of 1970s economy, mm-hmm. de- deregulation and offshoring of labor strips away significant portions of that material world so that nobody can actually return to it. And so, <laughs> you know, what you what you have is, is uh, you know, scads of people people who mm-hmm. are now who are now invested in the self project of getting loose of uh-huh. becoming of becoming sort of more self aware more cognizant more organic more in touch with the earth turn in turn um, on drop out yeah they're 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 doing they're doing all of that and meanwhile and meanwhile the labor that actually makes their shoes their earth shoes is being offshored to to Bangladesh uh-huh. and so what is what is left for that demographic except to monetize the lifestyle they can't monetize 
the, the, the manufacturing of mm-hmm. the actual material necessities of, of life because that's either becoming automated or offshored. Yeah. And so, and so it makes sense. There's, there's this like cycle of, of, of reinforcing factors where, you know, people sort of get funneled into, you know, almost a, a world that just sort of increasingly becomes less and less real. Well, and uh, one of the points that Adam Curtis uh, brings up, and uh, if you can even call it a point, those are so loose, but he says in uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, that there's this attempt at, you know, communism, essentially, that these communities want equality. And so they splinter off and there's these, you know, groups, but that we're so predisposed to hegemony that what happens by the 80s, I mean, what you're saying is a financial and manufacturing point that's material and true, but another psychological component is that charismatic leaders rose up and took control of every single one of those, uh, you know, kind of idyllic communities and turned them into cults, essentially, that the the idea of everybody was going to be completely equal was something that right wasn't yeah. it, that is happening internally in those cults at the same time that you know the you know you're making a material dialectic kind of argument about finance which is also true but yeah i guess and i guess if you if you have a self project emerge as a dominant economy in, in capitalism it's got to evolve so that somebody's on top right yeah. Somebody, somebody's going to be the leader uh you can take the hippies out yeah. of the capitalism but you couldn't take the capitalism out of the hippies yeah I agree. and you get back to the landers which is an, uh, its own weird thing you know? yeah uh, well, um, yeah, I remember like I was, I was born in 87. So like in the nineties, I remember like the internet was like being written about a ton before it actually arrived, you know, yeah. which I think is a huge part of how we got to where we got now. And, uh, and it was funny because it was like, it, the news was basically like, I think like the news was still news at that point, but it was still trying to like monetize things. Yeah, and it seemed like as a kid, like its point was to like terrify housewives. Like they were always telling you that this new big thing was coming and like it was going to get your kids. And yeah. so most of the coverage on the internet was that, but there was all this talk about how it was going to be this great thing that changed the world. And, you know, I remember like in the real early days of like chat and things, the kind of libertarian type people would talk about like, the internet's going to like remove all political problems because what will happen is you can log on and get the truth and the government can't control the truth. And so when you have the truth, you'll be able to vote right and overcome all of these things. And it was this very utopian, like just yeah. over the hill, the sun is rising. But what actually happened from where I was sitting was that what the internet let you do is have a million data points to justify anything you wanted to believe. What was being left out of that was this assumption that we want to change our beliefs <laughs> which is usually we want to justify our beliefs and we're we're kind of like our psychology is designed to stop us from wanting to change not not to to be evolving and so now you've got the ability to sit there and say i want to believe the earth is flat type 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 okay here's 500 reasons why i'm right and and that's yeah. sort of why everyone dug into their corner and there's 800 million corners you it's it's yeah yeah, and it's not just digging. It's not just digging in or not changing. It's that it's that the internet does seem to be in a really effective machine for actually amplifying and exaggerating beliefs that are already sort of well established or psychologically necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my the first uh, high demand group that I got lured into was run by a guy named Michael Roach. He's still out there. You can look him up on Instagram. He's still doing his kind of prosperity gospel, Tibetan Buddhism Uh BS. (laughs) And, 
it's about 19, let's see, what's the year? It's got to be 1997, 1998 or something like that. And one of the first things that I heard him say, or in that first year, uh, he was starting to move into an application of Tibetan philosophy and its various, you know, Buddhist theories of uh, emptiness uh, or, or sort of like, um, you know, no, the no inherent meaning of any material object or data point, and therefore, uh, you know, we 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 really have to examine how we're putting together reality from our behaviors. Um, you know, so it's a version of non-dualism that that's very like ornate and beautiful, and it has you know a lot of a lot of grace to it, but you know. What he wanted to do was he wanted to sell that uh, as a spiritual path to like Chinese oligarchs uh, oh. who at this who at the same time were, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, depopulating Tibet or colonizing it. Uh, very, very weird. But I remember him standing up at one point and, and saying, like, you know, almost like a child. Well, the Internet just came along and it added one hundred billion dollars of wealth to the world instantly. And I remember thinking, like, what, what, like, what are you, what are you, ta- like, what are you talking about? That, that it, that there's a new, it created a new world. Mm, yeah. That it, that it, that it created something more than, than, than what is materially actually present. Uh, it, it, but, but it's so. So my my point in bringing it up is that for the demographic that we study. Uh, the internet is not only uh, a kind of warehouse of every possible data point that you can use in your, you know, uh, melted epistemology. It's it's also a place where the the its infinite structure mirrors the aspiration of both new age philosophy and its endless growth and late stage capitalism and its lack of limitation, right? It's like, there's no, there's no natural limit to anything in spatially or Mm -hmm. epistemologically on the internet. And so there's this mechanism that we have that is based on uh, a complete absence of guardrails uh, or boundaries. It's a technology for, creating literally infinite space i mean i watch my i watch my son play minecraft uh and you know he's the program is literally as he zooms out forward the program is literally building the landscape Mm -hmm. in the horizon and it will go on infinitely Mm -hmm. there's no there's no end to the number of blocks you can use there's no only computing power right Mm -hmm. The, the only thing that's really that's really like sort of creating a limit on 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 how large your minecraft world can be uh is is your crunching power mm-hmm. and so you know there's this there's this infinite growth technology uh that mirrors these beliefs that the mind is an infinite resource or the self can infinitely grow it's all frictionless uh it took away the the notion of um y- you know identifying charisma versus expertise as being some sort of, uh, you know, pole star for whether you're going to give anybody credibility. Um, yeah, yeah, that is a phenomenal point. I remember when I first heard, um, there are a couple guys that you guys have talked about. And I was saying like to my wife, like these guys talk like JJ Abrams movies. Like there's yeah. so much momentum that it's so engaging, but then you back up and you're like, wait, 
this doesn't make any why would you have put the people in the torpedo torpedo tubes in star trek 2 if you were going to shoot them in a what like it just it doesn't work but the whole time you're listening to it you're like yeah yeah well this thing connects the next thing and nothing holds together but there is a charisma that i think people assume and of course it doesn't help if you're you know kind of a moron that also has happens to have a phd or something so people think that you're an expert um but there is this thing where we we do mistake charisma for expertise yeah Um, well and and there's no um there's no way of really defining it except through exposure like charisma is defined post hoc right mm -hmm. it's like did this did this go viral well you can sort of try to reverse engineer why it went viral, but you can't really get to the bottom of why do some people throw up when they hear Tony Robbins' voice and why do some people <laughs> feel like they should go and spend $5,000 to walk on fire next to him? Like there is no real answer to that question. And and the, the demographic that we study uh, in conspirituality counterposes itself against the world of institutions and expertise through the mobilization of charisma and charisma alone, because we're talking about unregulated industries, which are unregulated in the same sort of historical political vein that the rest of the neoliberal economy took, because they are unregulated, there's no way of measuring the effectiveness of like the best chiropractor or the best Reiki practitioner. It has to be how the person performs it has to be how the person presents themselves to the public Mm -hmm. there's nothing else going on and the way in which that intersects with how somebody like trump comes to political power is almost a perfect overlay because he's not doing politics in the same way that the wellness influencer is not doing science or medicine they are doing performances of wellness. He's doing the performance of political power. Uh, and that seems to be enough. That's moving this, you know, uh, this, this, this economy, this $100 billion that instantly appeared, according to Michael Roach. Well, no, and that's my question for the people that I've never really had any of them answer. But the people who share you guys' critique, you know, my critique of these um, of these industries uh, the spiritual, you know, influencer space, but they don't want to look at the market. They they don't want to critique that. It, like y'all had an episode on conspirituality about coaches coaching coaches, where all these people went in and became influencer coaches, and so now there's enough of them that you can be like, I'm the coach who coaches you, right? Because everyone became a coach, you know, and right. and it's. Uh, but my question is like, when you get rid of man for the people who say, okay, that's bad but also just roll up your bootstraps and don't do it. Well, yeah. when everybody who's coming up and looking for work, you know, increasingly can't afford college, you've moved all the manufacturing overseas. We don't make anything. Yeah. The entire economy is food service and gig work, essentially, where you do more damage and spend more gas on your car, you know, driving around with Uber than you get paid. Yeah. If you stay in food service long enough, you know, you need Adderall and cocaine a lot of the time to keep up with the demands of the industry. Now you've got this addiction or health problems or it's just not sustainable all the time, but nothing is manufactured. The only other thing out there is content creator influencer. How do you expect all these people not to be jumping into that space and, you know, without another option? I, I don't I don't see a way where that goes away unless something changes at the bottom level. But there's a lot of people who feel like we can just do it through gumption or diligence or some sort of empty language based value. Well, one, one thing that I would say is that, uh, 
you know, any kind of political movement that uh, began to reconsider the invisibility and the unpaid nature of care work would be a first start, right? Yeah. Because regardless of whether or not there are Ford factories rolling uh, trucks off of the line in Detroit anymore, there's going to be people, usually women, uh, staying at home, taking care of uh, elderly people with disabilities and children. Mm. And it's like, so, so, so whether, whether you are you know, not making anything and you've become a content influencer or you still have the opportunity to make something, uh, the care work is still there. Mm-hmm. And, and and to make that more visible and to make it paid perhaps through, you know, I don't know, UBI has a bunch of problems with it, but 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 with some something that acknowledged the fact that work is going on even in this strangely sort of depersonalized and uh, dissociative mm-hmm. world, then then that would be really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the and the I guess I guess the other thing that I would say is that, you know, relearning how to do good things in the world uh is is actually a really good thing and unfortunately it has been taken up primarily by a kind of uh reactionary political aesthetic that says uh you know i'm going to um you know i'm going to organic farm or I'm going to learn to wild harvest, or I'm going to, you know, uh, figure out how to, how to, how to um, provide for my local community, and and it, it, so something has to happen there where the drive to do that has to be should be socialized mm-hmm. uh, into into networks of solidarity, so that the people who are doing that as influencers and they're doing quite well at it uh, somehow realize that. You know, it doesn't really help anybody except perhaps themselves through their royalty checks uh, to to sort of promote or to advertise a form of life that, you know, the vast majority of people don't have access to. So, you know, I, I am like a really good example of this is, is uh, you know, RFK Jr. is proposing that uh, the um, opioid crisis that various uh, addiction issues that that statistically seem to be on the rise. I don't know whether he's got those facts right or not. He usually gets most things wrong. But I mean, let's just say that there's a lot of people who are underserved by addiction services and mental health services. We know that. So he's talking about uh, modeling a countrywide country or rural retreat organic farm network uh-huh. where where kids teenagers uh could go to work for four years uh-huh. uh learning how to farm and work in a woodwork and they wouldn't yeah. have phones uh they wouldn't have their devices they wouldn't have internet access and and uh i mean to be honest it's like you can see where the appeal comes from uh, in a world in which uh, very few people are able to touch grass, but when you know you know that the the logic behind that is is pretty much eco fascist and ableist, uh-huh. that you know it's it's not going to have the it's not going to have the desired uh, outcome, or it's not going to have a, a a good systemic outcome. And I think that's why Naomi Klein's analyses are so important because. You know, I I find myself listening to RFK Jr. on this, you know, kind of organic 
uh, reparation camp idea. And I'm going, yeah, I think that sounds like a really good idea. And I really don't want him running it. Uh, And then I realized that it's not something that I, as a policymaker, would bring up or press for because that guy's already talked about it. Uh, and, And what Klein is saying is that whenever we have these, you know, uh, reactionary forces take up reasonable critiques of uh, the neoliberal order. Yeah. Uh, they make sense to a huge portion of the population, but because you know people who are more attuned to the facts feel poisoned by their involvement with those issues, we don't actually take them up ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, like, I think that the general idea of figuring out how to uh, I could be part of an abolitionist program, right? To, uh-huh. to, to get rid of prisons and to create farms. Uh, but you would have to make sure that it was uh, some of the fundamental assumptions of, of how people are served uh, are really well studied. And I don't think, you know, RFK Jr. really has anything helpful to say about that. Well, I remember during I was, when I was in college, it was like kind of the end of like libertarians. Like there would be these few because there's not really a lot left. Like there would be these people that like, you know, wore a backwards baseball cap and had long hair and listened to Radiohead and they'd put up the Ron Paul poster and a lot of, and they were really into Ron Paul. But I remember that there was a contingent of just kind of like normal moderate Democrats that were like, we should vote for Ron Paul because he has ideas that are like pretty good that might happen. And then ideas that are so batshit crazy, they'll never happen. Right. And so it, like, it was a strategic thing that they were trying to do, you know, by hoping that those ideas would get weeded out. Right. Um, right. But the, the way that like when you when you're talking about um you know all of these cults and and most of the reactionary political movements that you're talking about begin with a critique of the system as it exists politics the neoliberal order you know healthcare that is right yeah it's just right. that the answer is not snake oil because there's corruption over here and I mean, that's one of the things that I wish, you know, it, it would be interesting to me if y'all got into more on, on conspirituality is a lot of times the episodes end with this is pseudoscience and this is science. Well, you know, I'm a licensed social worker. I'm doing evidence based practice in Alabama. We're also trying to innovate because a lot of the things that have been around forever, like cognitive behavioral therapy, I don't feel like are very helpful for trauma. We need more kind of brain based medicine that changes the subbrain. There's, you know, 20 competing technologies and QEG and neuromodulation with different pros and cons, all these things. So I'm on the, you know, science part of it. But in that system, I still see a ton of problems with what we allow to happen, you know. And so, yeah, right. I think there was very unscientific things about the way we use research, for example, the people with the PhDs. For sure. And and I'd just like to point out that that the... You know, whenever we have a denouement on the show that is, okay, well, we've separated the, you know, the the, the truth from the falsehood here and uh, on we go. Um, I share some of your dissatisfaction with that. And, and I think that's partly because uh, I don't, I'm not being a scientist. I'm not the scientific analyst on the, on the show. I didn't, I don't do science journalism. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's as satisfying as me to, for me, to make those distinctions. Um, I think they're very important to make, uh, mm-hmm. but I also, but I also, uh, th- sometimes we get into the territory of, um, you know, suggesting that, oh, if everybody just came to a clear understanding of the capital S science, uh, we would, we yeah. would all be, uh, okay. And I just think that that's patently untrue. I'm not saying that, that, that we are saying that my colleagues are saying that, yeah. but I think it can leave some people with the impression. And to your point, 
um, you know, the, the, the pseudoscience and the conspiracies that we conspiracy theories that we study, they come from real events. They come from real needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, as, as, uh, to, to reference Naomi Klein again, you know, conspiracy theorists get the feelings right and then they get the facts wrong. Um, and I would say additionally that, that, uh, conspiracy theorists are empathetic, uh, because yeah. they can feel systemic problems acutely. Like they know that healthcare can be tone deaf. Mm -hmm. neglectful traumatizing uh that that its profit model can be predatory they know that governments lie they know that the cia overthrows foreign governments they the know lady that, on the yeah. january 6 protests telling the reporter i'm here sieging the capital because my son has autism and we don't have health care and they have the cure for that in there i mean it was heartbreaking incredible I mean, stuff thing I, I yeah I have a lot to say about that too because autism I think is is like s profoundly interesting as a flashpoint for why so much of this has happened because it has to do with uh you know imputed values or or skills in parenting uh and then also just the the mystery of who the child is amidst uh, a capitalistic structure that needs it to go into production, right? Yeah. So anyway, but but I would say like, you know, conspiracy theorists also know that Jeffrey Epstein abused girls and young women in order to manipulate political power. Mm -hmm. uh, they know that he ultimately got away with it. They're correct that the Catholic Church has been, you know, revealed in part to be like a global sex trafficking organization that shuffles around priests and, and does whatever it can to limit liability. Money They're not wrong. Sometimes. Right, right. They're not wrong about surveillance capitalism. Uh, they're not wrong uh, that, uh, you know, the response, um, they're, they're just not wrong about, you know, what, what the, the, the general structures are. But the responses they come up with um, are going to be, you know, scrambled because they often don't have access to the, the 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 data or the structures of learning that they need. You know, they're not going to get their answers or justice from from yoga gurus or anti-vax salesmen. Um, well, and, and when, and when I, the train blows up in in Palestine, Ohio, and they and their their solution is not to mobilize an effort to contain this thing federally and treat it, it's to just for some reason light you know, tons of polyvinyl chloride on fire and turn a turn a, a whole town black. And, you know, the Obama, the left leaning guy is the one who repealed all these rules on the brakes yeah. for the trains. And Trump is sitting in office. Do you need like a, a chemtrail conspiracy about why the government is, is using the planes to secretly do it at that point? Like, you know, I, I think what you need, I think the thing is, is that there's a direct relationship between the chemtrail conspiracy as something that you can create versus the Palestine, um, you know, disaster, which has been created and is being denied or suppressed. Right. Like, I think this is this is essential to the to the heart of the satanic panic as well. Mm -hmm. We know childhood sexual abuse is a thing we know that it happens domestically we know that it has it's it's been covered up we know that uh there are power dynamics involved in how it occurs uh what happens over years over generations when you say nope 
we're not going to listen. Nope, uh, it's too difficult to report this out journalistically. Nope, you don't have enough sources. Nope, because you don't rec- you don't remember the color of the shirt, the color of the shirt your perpetrator was wearing when you were six years old. You're not a credible narrator. Mm-hmm. When you can't, you know, when it's so difficult to find redress through journalism or law, why wouldn't the desperate person begin to get louder? Why wouldn't the desperate person uh, be forced into a position in which they might want to do things that would uh, become more visible or they would or why wouldn't they be paranoid that everybody is actually trying to uh, suppress the problem of pedophilia? Why wouldn't they um, begin to let their imaginations provide them some, you know, sort of relief in terms of of understanding where they are Mm -hmm. well i i um you uh had talked a little bit about your history and i don't want to make you repeat everything that you've said on your show but can you give people a little bit of context of kind of your arc as as a scholar and a you know a, a person you know, what you, how your epistemological hygiene, you know, changed or was informed over time? Yeah, I mean, I I was in two high demand groups. Um, it, you know, I'm glad that you you note uh, that you know I don't want you to make I don't want to make you repeat things because there is like <laughs> there is a relationship between recitation and reification, right? Like uh-huh. if you, the more you tell, you know, a particular story about how you got somewhere, the, the more social capital it can build up. And, and mm-hmm. I've noticed that around, um, I used to use the word, uh, cult survivor. Uh, right. and, and, and I think that's still a valid, uh, term, but I realized that when I used it, um, it made people very, very sort of like, um, tentative to, you know, ask me challenging questions or to say, uh, oh, um, you know, how, well, how, how, what, how, how were you vulnerable? Uh, you know, how did you get yourself into that situation and why didn't you leave? And I think those are valid questions to ask as well. So anyway, uh, I used to teach yoga. Uh, I used to, um, I, I founded and I co-ran to yoga studios i was a community organizer here in toronto for uh for yoga people as far as that went uh that wasn't much though it wasn't like political organizing um i did that in my prior life um but uh uh you know, I became a journalist really out of the the recovery process of figuring out what had happened, gathering analytical frameworks for why my particular experiences were not surprising, uh, how they functioned. It was like a breath of fresh air to come across uh, cult theory that said, oh, well, you know, the way that Michael Roach did the thing that he did was through X, Y, and Z. Um, that was really helpful. Mm. Um but uh, I, I've since, you know, um, really taken a, a much more uh, politically left and historical materialist lens uh, around why cults form and why they explode during the 1970s, uh, why they harden and become uh, much more and are exploding now and are exploding now. Why why they become uh, much more highly lucrative in the 1980s. Um, and so, yeah, I've I've really come to see that the the post nineteen eighties global expansion mm. of conspirituality 
Um, it has been amplified by yoga and Buddhist and wellness high demand groups, but it's also inseparable from the breakdown of local economies, mm. uh, stable labor, labor markets, plus the rise of gig work, as you were referring to. Um, and then all of these things are amplified by social media fragmentation and, you know, just a, a growing awareness of neoliberal neglect and, and cruelty. And, and I've come through this uh, podcast project to really believe that uh, conspirituality and QAnon in particular are, uh, it makes sense that these are primarily American phenomena. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they, they would not have exploded to the extent that they did, especially in the U.S., if there wasn't already embedded or it didn't come on top of a centuries-long history of white Christian nationalism uh, and then also a, a, a population that, you know, just was not uh, cared for by functional government, by labor protections or, or yeah. universal health care. Well, so based uh, on pretty American assumptions about self and identity and freedom and, you know. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder, do you feel like you talked a little bit about the relationship between cults and fascism. I mean, one way I see that connection is that um, it seems like they both I mean, there there is a lefty political neurosis, too. I mean, I'm not letting anybody off the hook. There's also a moderate. I mean, I think the For lefty sure. one is that you identify with the victim so much that it's not really empathy. You're just saying I can't change and nothing's my fault. So also nothing is his fault and he can't change, which is not, you know, effective. And yeah. then there's that kind of avoidant moderate, you know, political neurosis of like, no, whenever there's two people fighting, I don't want to pick a side. It's just that both bad ideas are a little bit right. The truth's always in the middle <laughs> of that thing. And that right. comes from like, you know, I don't want to hold authority, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think the right wing political neurosis is like this thing of I was raised, don't cry. I'll give you something to cry about. I either don't want to own my own trauma or admit that it was damaging. I despise my own vulnerability. So I project and attack that vulnerability externally. So when you're telling me, well, this little group of people, they're gay or black or whatever. No, no, no. The free market wants them to hurt or God wants them to. You know, there's a I'm angry at a part of myself that I don't like. And so I'm going to take it out on you. When somebody yeah. says, well, we're bombing 13 countries you can't name. No, that's for freedom. That's that's good. You know, you don't. that's not a foreign policy point. It's an emotional reaction, you know. Yeah, right. And, right. and what it seems like from, you know, Max Earhart to Rainier to any of these people, what they're doing is essentially right wing and then it's saying hey everything is your fault mind over matter whatever happens to you every time you get hurt you're the reason you know, there's no victimhood you're the reason yeah. that you're hurting so disown all the parts of yourself and all the things that can recognize these red flags and realize that all your suffering is ultimately your own doing so i'm not abusing you and then once you are in that kind of dissociation essentially or numbness there is no sense of self. There is no identity. And, and that's what a lot of people seem to be calling brainwashing. I mean, where is that right, wrong? Like, what, where, what do you, what do you, think you know, what, I, what I'm thinking, I mean, I've sort of been on this theme already today, but as I'm listening to you describe the basic uh, narcissistic orientation of um, these, of these groups and movements, um, I'm just sort of in awe of how deftly, and I think th I think this happens unconsciously. <laughs> you know, there, there's this thing about how um, one of the transcribers of A Course in Miracles uh, worked for MK Ultra, uh, mm -hmm. and so some people have 
you know, indulge this fantasy that, uh, oh, you know, um, the, the, the self blame, um, victim blaming architecture of texts like A Course in Miracles are actually like a government plot to, to, you know, de, to de-socialize or to destroy alliances and things like that. I don't think it happens like that at all. Um, I, it seems that it seems that Jonathan Safran Siegel or whatever that book was, you know, reporting to the, uh, yes, the CIA headquarters is he flying back to Langley. Yeah, exactly. Because, or, or did, or was, or was yoga a psyop, you know, that, that was actually invited in by the, uh, Indian immigration act of 1968 or whenever it was where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, if 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 we bring if we bring all of these uh, gurus in to teach uh, yoga in the local storefronts, then people will start going to stop going to protests. Like mm-hmm. that did that did happen. I just don't mm-hmm. think it was planned. Uh, <laughs> well, it was convenient. And, there was an ex agent who was talking about the Epstein thing and the history of the CIA with child trafficking and whatever, and he was like, you know, it's pretty easy to go into a country that is a banana republic that's starting to use its resources for itself to help its people. And then overthrow that government with the military so that you can and make it look like an accident or a natural thing so that we can extract all those resources and have them cheaper and they don't stay in that country. It's like that's pretty easy to do. But if you if you look at these conspiracy theories, when there's huge, vast networks and a lot of failure points and, and it went off flawlessly, the CIA didn't do it. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that I think that what is so tender and uh, tragic is is that so many of the spiritualities that we study on the podcast they emerge as i don't know it seems that they emerge in part as a way of people trying to feel better about the demands and the logics of late capitalism right because they don't actually challenge the um the fetish for productivity they don't challenge the uh relentless attack on workers rights they don't challenge the basic kind of self-centered principle of you know uh, uh wealth accumulation Th- there's nothing about you know the the yoga or the buddhism or the the course in miracles materials that i studied that encouraged me to be a social actor mm-hmm. in fact in fact what it did and going this is going back to to binkley a little bit is that it made me feel better about the fact that it feels really bad to be a social actor and that and that what's what's actually more what gives more relief what gives more pleasure uh, is to shrink your world down into the sort of pristine function of your own, you know, digestive system, or mm-hmm. you know, the 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 moment by moment uh, weather in your mind. Uh, and if you can, f- and if you can sort that out, then then you're then you're then you have some sort some sense of agency. It's it's really an abdication of uh, of a greater you know, of a, of a greater possibility. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, are, are cults, uh, right wing, um, or do they tend toward in that direction? Yeah. Ideologically. Well, no, let's say, let me say this. Ideologically, there can be some confusions because there are left wing cults. Uh, there are Marxist cults. Um, there are, there are workers union cults for sure, 
But, uh, you know, one very helpful axiom from cult theory is that the content doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, because the mechanics uh, are are really the same, and the mechanics move structurally towards uh, you know right wing sensibilities, yeah. uh, conspiracy theories, and authoritarianism. A lot of people said that about Nexium was that the ideology kind of changed overnight when he came out with that like man's and women's course, the role of the society that 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 it went in this totally different direction really quickly when that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't heard that commentary. I think that that one thing that's at play is that um, maybe it was one of these breaking points where, uh, or or it was a, it was a content shift based upon his own sort of magpie insatiability for new content, right? Like what's what's going to be saleable mm-hmm. in this pyra- in this pyramid structure that I already have. And if I can build it into my own sexual ethics and behaviors yeah. uh, and talk about how, well, all women really want is this and all men should be like that. Uh, and that's all very au courant because neo-tantra is on the rise at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it, then it just, then it just works out. But I don't know that, you know, he had, uh, you know, a more progressive politics at any given time. Uh, I, I, my, my, well, I think memory... it was always the affectation of this is about self love and openness and knowing the self. Mm. And then once you had a certain oh, yeah. amount of buy in to it, you start, you, I think they all work like that, you know? Yeah. Right, and it looks right. like this big party on the outside and everybody's always talking to him on the stage saying like, oh, you had so much, it was so much fun. Thank you. That retreat was so great. In front yeah. of the new people who haven't been to the retreat yet, you know? Right. You know, <clears throat> but I, I don't know that it's funny. Like I got in trouble. I had to pull it down because one of the programs with Taproot is that like, you know, the reason we do the podcast and the blog, other than like, I'm a super busy, I spend all my time either at work or with my kids and I, I get to talk to smart people and I really get a lot out of that personally, but it's for SEO because that's the biggest expense for a business this size. You can write listicle garbage, you know, pay for a content farm to do that, or you can do things that people actually engage with and reshare. Yeah. And I do it because the project here is to find therapists who are talented and young and then empower them before the market will and let right. them have more control and ownership over their practice and the market will give them. And so, you know, your time, that's why this is so valuable. But so when an article gets really big, like the one that I had written critiquing BetterHelp or something, you know, I'm always like excited, but I had to pull down one of our biggest things, which I won't say the name of the organization because people were talking about this one high control group and they were like, why would anyone do this? People are so stupid, whatever. It made me mad because it felt like blaming the victim and also the people who tend to not understand how those groups work are the same ones that get taken advantage of by them, you know? Yeah, and right. So I wrote an article saying like, these are how they all work. Like I, I'm not saying, I, and I said in it, I, I'm not part of this organization and I don't have knowledge of this firsthand. I'm just telling you, this is what was behind the scenes because this is what they all do. Yeah. And right. So this is how they got in it. And people somehow missed that part. So people who had been in that group and left started sending me emails being like, Hey, yeah, you were in that group. What floor were you on? And I was like, Whoa, no, no, I wasn't. (laughs) And then other other people who were still in it thought that I was like a threat because there was some ongoing legal stuff against them. And they were like, kind of coming after my business and i was like i don't want to be on the radar of a cult at all. Like this is all off the internet. Don't worry about it. And it really struck a chord with the people who are in the organization, just kind of explaining the psychology of those groups in that. Yeah. Way. You know, I, what I hope, because, because I've been doing, um, cult journalism for maybe six, is it, what is it? 20, 
2024, I would say like eight years now. And um, what I would hope is that over time, the stakes, the rhetoric, the sensationalization of, or the sensationalism of the sort of cultic vibe just goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, toxic groups are not the exception. They're the rule. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to actually, for us to organize ourselves in uh, egalitarian and fair ways in mm-hmm. capitalism. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the shame involved in recognizing your participation in a group that hits the markers of these traditional definitions of, you know, dependence, dread of leaving and deception or, you know, behavioral information, thought, emotion control, you know, all of the sort of checkbox definitions that, that cult theory has given us from, you know, very astute researchers. Um, there's, there, there's a way in which sort of identifying your participation in a group like that is a liberatory moment, but it's also an incredibly shameful moment. Yeah. Uh, and and negotiating the passage uh, from shame to uh, a little bit more personal freedom and agency is really not helped by social media, and it's not helped for the most part by you know having your groups uh, inner workings displayed by documentarians on on Netflix. Yeah, I I think. Um... I think that's very true. And I would be curious because you had talked about you not being the science expert on um, conspirituality. So, you know, I'm interested in things like mysticism and uh, the, the, there's perennial philosophy that people in a vacuum come up with the same types of spirituality, which to me is telling us something about our unconscious, you know, things like yoga and Carl Jung and, you know, a yeah. lot of these mystical guys completely get misappropriated and butchered and have, you know, the they have these gross associations. But, you know, the original stuff, I like some of that. I mean, could you speak a little bit to maybe that tension that we do have a objective brain that is scientific and logical and a subjective brain that is mystical and emotional? And, you know, how do we reconcile that tension, you know, in the, in the world? Well, how do you do that in your work? You know, well, well, OK, so so. um I'll speak to how we kind of negotiate this territory in the podcast because we have different perspectives on it. And then that'll say something about like how I personally do it. Um, There is a strategy for speaking about uh, pseudoscience that is kind of uh, intersectional with how we speak about uh, toxic beliefs or dysfunctional beliefs. And you know the 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 thing is is that is that uh one strategy could be we could describe as being uh atheistic right where the drive is to sort of dispel illusion uh in all cases uh and to treat uh pseudoscience and you know the belief structures of of religious people as though they belonged to the same category. And, you know, I think that there can be a lot of value there, especially for people who are questioning their natal religious beliefs that they didn't consent to taking on. Uh Um, You know, they can uh, evaluate in a very kind of uh, liberatory way the, the possibility that their yearnings 
are actually have material bases or that you know there's nobody watching over them in some kind of way that that increases their their paranoia instead of their wonderment in life all of that i think can be uh very valuable and then there's a way in which uh certain framings of uh mysticism and religious belief as being unnecessary or um you know predictably toxic because they're going to lead to bad places uh that that in my estimation and i differ from julian and derek in this way in my estimation that can go too far um not because it's not technically true not because it's not a reasonable argument but because it's not an effective argument when you're speaking to a population uh that is never going to be atheistic right like i think the current stats i could think the current stats pew has uh self-declared atheism in the united states at around like four percent or something like that that is a tiny minority of people yeah um and they should be protected they should be honored uh they should be allowed to put their funny statues in state legislatures in indiana right mm-hmm. that's 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 all that's all cool by me uh but i think it is a mistake to take an overly rationalist uh approach to the relationship between religious sensibilities and mysticism uh, and frameworks and pseudoscience or religious extremism. Uh, I think the causal pathway between religious sensibility and negative political outcomes is very uncertain. Obviously, it is uh, toxic in political conflicts around the world. Obviously, there are forms of religious fundamentalism where super strong uh, and toxic and aggressive beliefs are at the center of, uh, you know, jihadism, religious Zionism, and then apocalyptic Christianity all boiling over in Israel at the moment uh, with this kind of zeal. Yes, all of those things have to be reckoned with. But an attitude that um, takes, uh, that that is incurious about or that is skeptical towards the authenticity of people's religious experience when they say that religious experience is helping them understand the world in more empathetic and solidarity promoting ways that's a mistake i don't i think that's a tactical i think that's a tactical error yeah I would, that was kind of my question there i would say i would say uh, and i haven't like said this this clearly before i don't think i'd say it on our podcast but <laughs> but 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 i'll uh, i can i feel well, okay there's saying tension. It here. you know not that it's not a great show and it doesn't work but it's y'all are different people and there's yeah different we're different people that's where i noticed that they bump up against one another the most yeah yeah totally yeah that's that's where we really have that's where we have our most difficult and and our most as a therapist too that likes psychology and feels like it it became uh a ton of damage that has not been undone to it got done to it in the 80s it's when we came in and said everything is a number we can understand everything empirically oh cbt is the thing that works the best your only cognition and behavior yeah, but yeah, and when and you're guess processing what? Then, trauma, that is isn't right. a part of your brain that does not understand time and does not understand language. You know, yeah. I'm not a woo-woo spiritual out there, but it is energy. You know, that is the word for it. Yeah, well, and, and the thing is, is that is that so all of that ramps up during the 1980s, and then guess what? We have a replication crisis. Yeah. 
so so it's so then we then we have to go back then we mm-hmm. ha- i would just say that the area is i i just would say that the area is contested and it should remain so mm-hmm. and and i would say something uh like uh i believe that at this point um self-identified progressive um american christians mm-hmm. even um, even even maybe even especially evangelicals, that mm-hmm. the health of the American democracy is probably more in their hands at this point than in the hands of any other group, because they are the ones that have the language, the family connections and the cultural connections uh, that go deep into uh, the red state psyche that has um, curdled over with a kind of paranoia. They are the ones who are able to effectively say, hey, you know, uh, Christian nationalism is a heresy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the ones who are able to say, hey, Jesus doesn't care about your crotch. Uh, and this is why. Uh, they I'd are buy the that ones... t-shirt if you want to sell it. Ex- exactly. I mean, they, they, are the, they, are the ones, they are the ones who, like family members, can say, we share something here. And we're going to be persuasive with you, uh, and and that's not something that Lucian grieves at the at the Satanic Temple. Yeah. He can't do that. He's he's a showman. He's funny, but he can't do that. He has not. He's moved. a trickster. I mean, he's it's, a trickster, it's right? He's a professional. He, he, yeah, and he has not moved the needle. I would say on uh, on on um, he has not meaningfully moved the needle in terms of of depolarization or political, um, you know, I, I don't know, usefulness or generativity in any way, right? Well, um, but, I mean, where from where I'm sitting, and again, you know, some of the tension I hear on your show, and then see over the course of my life being educated and and meeting the people in, in school and everything, it's like you don't really understand what religion is, that it's this kind of mystical and emotional phenomenon that is helping. It's a lens to help you make sense of the world. You will make something your religion, like it will control you. It will get you if you don't understand that. And I think people who identify as atheists, a lot of the time are the most susceptible to that. I mean, there were like people made fun of me for a long time that I went to school with for like looking at Carl Jung or being a comparative religion major and studying these things that were sort of as a soft science because why don't you just be an enlightened atheist and feel better than everybody and make, you know, jokes about this. And then, you know, what happened, you know, all those people, you know, post-college had a drug trip and all right. of a sudden are telling me, you know, and then there, I died and there was nothing and there was the water and then the world came out of the water and it was reborn. And I'm like, you're telling me Genesis, like this is literally. Yeah. The, and then they were like shocked. And I was like, no, no, no. The answer is not that you're supposed to go and join these religions, which is what they were kind of trying to do. I, you you could. The point is that you just need to understand this isn't a thing separate from you that is other people. It has other people's number, but it doesn't have yours. You know, that yeah, transcendental yeah. function is there. And if you don't own it, and I think, you know, I don't know if you've read Edward Edinger, but a lot of that, that we have an existential self and a mystical self. I mean, what happens with the Ayn Rand people being super logical? You know, their religion becomes economics, essentially. Like you're using, yeah. you're using the wrong part of the brain for the wrong thing. You're taking a religious experience and making it literal, which it, it, that's kind of a weird thing to do. Or you're taking an economic system or, you know, a secular system and turning it into a religion, which is kind of a weird thing to do. I, I want to say something. Sense. I want to say something. Yeah, it does. I want to say something very like specific and in defense too of my colleagues, so that I I'm not misrepresenting them. No, I know, I know. But I want to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting anything, which is sure, sure. that that 
like neither of them would uh, ignore or deny mystical experience or um, uh, uh, the, 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 the reality of uh, people going through transcendent sensations. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, there's no argument with that. Um, and, and so they really, uh, both of them express a kind of like deep devotional mysticism. Yeah. That, but, but the, where the, the only way, the only place that the, that the friction really emerges is whether or not, uh, we lean into a critique of people's, um, you know, origin story for how those mystical experiences emerge yeah. in in the process of arguing about something else, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, it comes up, it comes up uh, in terms of like, can a Catholic progressive be a credible analyst of or source mm-hmm. uh, for for uh, th- this particular political issue? Uh, you know, how much do you have to agree with somebody in order for them to be an ally that that's yeah. really what well, that's really where the the friction lies uh and and you know and and it's not even like it doesn't even descend uh into into rudeness but when you don't like we we you have to recognize where your biases and tendencies lie and and if you have the feeling that um the person who is a uh, uh, a devoted catholic for example is going to be epistemologically or morally challenged in a bunch of different ways that make him incompatible as an ally. If you just have that general sense, you're probably not going to look carefully at what they say. You're probably not going to go seek them out journalistically as a source. And I think that can be a lost opportunity. But luckily, you know, we are a diverse cast. And so I can do that. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and it works out. Then, then we fight about it in Slack. Yeah. Well, and I'm not I'm not at all trying to criticize your show. I mean, it's a successful thing or any of the people on it. Um, I just think that the diversity of perspective, the the diversity of perspective is interesting. And when you all have talked about that, it's been one of the uh, things that's and and that's important for epistemological hygiene, you know. Yeah. Right. To know what you're coming from. So, yeah, I, I, you know. And I think the secularization of like watching the secularization of like uh, the evangelical church, especially the mega church movement, because evangelicals yeah. are big net. You, you see that almost taking down some of those churches, like, like it, the, their need to deconstruct it and control it. Like almost the pandemic kind of bit them because I remember like one of my barometers for seeing if there's a cultural shift or whatever is like, did somebody write the same article in the Atlantic like six times, basically by different authors, you know, like, and the one that happened was like during the pandemic, they kept being like, well, I think that, um, you know, this guy, he's a right wing pastor of the mega church and he's for Trump, but his practitioners are, or his, his people are leaving the church and calling him a woke, you know, libtard on Facebook. So, you know, if that's happening, maybe the church is doing a bad job reaching out to people during the pandemic or, you know, engaging the community or something. And to me, it was like, no, what happened was that the historical Jesus was already kind of not useful to you. You know, the things he did. Yeah. You know, so you took that out. And then, you know, because I went to a lot of different kinds of churches doing my comparative religion thing. And one of the things I was kind of shocked by was that, like, 
God doesn't really come up much. I mean, it was like a list, a call and response in these mega churches of like cultural grievance. I mean, yeah. seriously, I sat in one service that was like an hour and a half long and they would just be like, well, this is on this reality TV show, but we don't like trans people, do we? Oh, no, no, we don't. Well, this person said a Muslim could get into heaven, but we know that's not true. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, I don't watch TV, man. Like if it makes you this upset, just don't watch this. <laughs> no, but that was it. And so when the pandemic happened, you know, you take the historical Jesus out of it and God is not, he's too mystical and, and weird. So what you do is you, you just use Jesus as a form of submission. Like when he came up in church, it was always like, but you've got to surrender to Jesus. You know, yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah, right. to be your own thing and fight yourself, but you've got to give in to Jesus. They really yeah. just meant dissolve your own identity and be a part of this thing, you know, is how they used it. And so during the pandemic, everyone's on Facebook and they're like, well, I can just do this myself. I can just LARP. I can connect the dots and know the rules. I'm writing my own sermon. I'm right. going back with the chalkboard and here's where the Soros <laughs> money went. Why would I waste the gas to go to church? I can just eat at the cheesecake factory, you know, in my SUV, whatever I want. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I want to ping um, here. I think I think Brad Onishi on Straight White American Jesus is probably one of the best analysts of of this particular transition uh, to the or the ascendancy of the suburban megachurch, which is basically uh, audience captured. It's an entrepreneurial model, uh, and then it bites everybody in the ass when the pastors sort of come around and they realize, oh, they have to repeat what uh, their parishioners are hearing on Fox News, or else they're not going to get the tithe. And uh, and that's also why recently yeah. uh, I've Because there's a, a monoculture. Yeah. There's not a religious yeah. function and a government function anymore. Yeah. It's, there's this huge monoculture that you get to be part of, and yeah. you're either with it or against it. So it's not that I'm at church right now, I don't want to hear Fox News. It's that your church has to be Fox News or I'm not going to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and this is one of the reasons that that I'm very interested uh in Catholic progressivism currently because uh there's actually there's at least some semblance of central organization that everybody has to agree around. It's not uh it's not sort of free for all every pulpit is uh going to be bought and paid for by the congregation. Mm -hmm. Um there's there's actually an existing institution with all of its sort of apathies and bureaucracies and possibilities and there are people fighting over actual resources that everybody shares uh i'm not, I'm so, not at all calling them yeah. gangs but the comparison is kind of apt that like you know there is a guy that's the head of the mafia or the head of ms-13 <laughs> and you have to do what he says yeah but you're if you're a crip or a blood like you're that's just a sort of symbol and initiation ritual and, yeah. and aesthetic but like the there's no one telling the crips in new york what to do from california yeah that, and, yeah. and the evangelicals are kind of more the crypt blood model and the SMS <laughs> model is kind of more with that's the Pope, man. You know, he's the. Yeah. He's the yeah. And right yeah. now and right now, the Godfather is having lunch every Wednesday with a bunch of trans women from the poorest district in, you know, this town south of Rome. Like it's it's a really interesting time. He's coming out with big long letters about how you know the 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 environment has to be protected at all costs. Uh, do you, yeah, do, have you ever looked at the Catholic Church's relationship with Carl Jung? No, not really. It's really weird. Like, well, at one point, um, Jung wrote the Pope a letter because he uh, made Mary a saint or elevated her status somehow, and Jung was like, "Yeah, you're doing the religion so much better now because there has to be a female aspect. There's always a quaternity. Oh. So you're you're trying to do." three but you also kind of need the devil in there and like you know whatever there's oh, three he was that are, he was cheering one and then one different but there has to be a feminine and the pope's like 
yeah, I'm, of course I'm doing Catholicism right on the Pope, dude. You know, <laughs> you, like probably rolls something up, you know, with the letter, you know. And then, then later, they somebody's like, hey, this psychologist, he's talking about religion, and a Pope writes like a blessing of Jung that he gets, even though he didn't ask for it. And it's like, okay, thanks. And then another bishop gets angry 10 years later and writes another letter and says, this guy's saying archetypes and whatever. And then the Pope like sends him not an excommunication, but like a denunciation. So yeah, you know, right. just, this guy minding his own business, getting all this mail from the Catholic church is kind of a funny thing. That you know? is funny. Yeah. That's um, wild. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of an aside, but I always, I always thought that that was a overlooked episode of, he also, Jung gets in a fight with Martin Buber at one point via mail, which I thought was funny too. Yeah, yeah, the old flame yeah. wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really it is like forum posting. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Well, this has been fascinating. I don't. I, I want. I want to um, keep you past time. I know you've probably got other things to do. Um, yeah. I did invite the other members of Conspirituality on, so it wasn't like I was, tr- you know, p- saying your perspective was one I wanted to bless and not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, right. You know, yeah. everyone's schedule's busy, and then I actually I sent Brad Anishi an email a while ago. I had her back from him, but we're kind of teeny tiny, and this is just you know kind of uh, for fun. So. Well, I really appreciate it, Joel. Great, great, great talk. Great thoughts. Thank you for your questions and your thoughtfulness. Is there anything that you would like to promote, like that you're working on, if people want to find your stuff and and know anything more about what you're doing? Um, Um, I can just say that, uh, you know, everything that we've got going on is at conspirituality.net, including there's a link to our book, which I think is pretty good. Um, And uh, I'm just interested in hearing from, I'm personally interested in hearing from people in that, uh, you know, progressive institutional religion zone. So I'm always sort of like trying to find people like that. I've got a listener story that's up today that's uh, from a woman who um, grew up in a tradcath homeschool environment, but then became a church organist. And uh, she's made her way towards a kind of generative agnosticism, but she's done that through music, but also a lot of self-work. And and mm. so, uh, and so I just, I love stuff like that. Um, I'm also becoming, um, more and more interested in this huge uh, unseen up until now by me world of video games and that's happening through my kids yeah. I started yesterday playing you have oh, to know them as a yeah. depth psychologist or if right. you're doing depth therapy because they I mean Elder Scrolls and uh, Dark, Dark Souls or whatever yeah. I mean, those are the mythology yeah. of my patients and those metaphors you know when I was in the when I was seeing a different population I was in the hospital I had to go out and learn Dragon Ball Z because that was yeah. the the way that a lot of inner city African American children wanted to talk about power and struggles and progress and emotion and now it's video games you know I don't I don't Yeah amazing I mean I mean my my 11 year old uh, got me to start playing Cult of the Lamb yesterday and he got me to start playing it because I was looking looking over his shoulder and I was absolutely astonished that this strange little production company from Australia had created an incredibly funny but also accurate game uh, depicting the formation of a cult. Um, and if anybody's out there who who is a cult is a video game journalist uh, who knows about how to contextualize this, I'd love to talk to them. But um, my question for the eleven year old was, you know, I'm fifty two and I've spent uh, twenty years involved in uh, in in cult analysis and discourse and 
I'm wondering whether you at 11 playing this game for a few months would give you a kind of pro, I, I didn't, would give you a kind of inoculation against these uh, forces. Like it's all out on the open, like what the leader is supposed, you as the leader are going to indoctrinate, you're going to gather devotion, you're going to issue new doctrines, you're going to preach sermons, you're going to um, uh, figure out how to balance the exploitation of your followers against feeding them. You, th It puts you into the incredibly funny position of being a little tiny lamb cult leader. Uh, and I, I, it just occurred to me like, oh, I've been talking for 20 years to boomers about how to solve the problem of cults and and what might be more effective is to figure out how to make the the influence mongering both identifiable accessible and funny yeah and and uh I, it's just blowing my mind to think about that right it's like it's like what have i been doing all of this time sort of spinning my wheels in a kind of paranoid recreation yeah. of of what cultic dynamics are Mm -hmm. uh, when, when here are these like Gen Z kids who are putting together this gorgeous, hilarious, very accurate depiction of cultic life in a way that if it takes off, uh, it's like, who would actually walk into an environment like I did when I was, you know, 29 years old and get sucked in by somebody like Michael Roach? It would be, it would be transparent. It would well, be humor is so incredibly important. I mean, that's yeah. a ton of, I think what makes this show, it's the kind of love it or hate it is that I want this to be funny because yeah. I think that humor is like one of those things that can, and cause you, like you, you never get humor in a vacuum, you know, like if you yeah. meet a real narcissist, like they can't be funny, like they'll make jokes, but it's just a power play of like, well, I'm better than her. Or she's bad or, you know, but like humor is this way of like, when you're, you get little, you know that you need, and that's why it's associated with outgroup so much of the time. I think uh, you know that you need somebody to, to get something about you or see something or accept something about you that they don't want. So you yeah. got to put that thing in gift wrap with a metaphor or a painting or or, or, or a witticism, you know. Yeah. And I think that that reaches people in a way that they hear it, you know, and they experience it through. Yeah, and then they relax, and then they yeah. relax, and they and they and there's and there's more generosity, right? Um, yeah. Good. All right. Well, I'm glad that you do that. Um, I'll look forward to hanging out with you again. Thanks, Joel. Right, thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate you coming on. Roman. Romans drink is out sober Fill the algorithms The algorithms kill And survive Surrender Feed your blood's blood's growth